0: I want to think this time about the Ethiopian eunuch in uh, Acts 8 here. And maybe let's just, let's just as we read the, uh, the account, Acts 8 from 20, uh, 28, uh, sorry, 26. But an angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south, unto the way that goes down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, the same as desert. And he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians who was over all her treasure, who had come to Jerusalem for to worship, and he was returning, and sitting in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near, and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran to him, and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and said, Do you understand what you read? And he said, How can I accept someone should guide me? And he besought Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the place of the scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, And as a lamb before his shearer is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away, his generation who shall declare, for his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray you, of whom speaks the prophet this, of himself or of some other? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on the way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, Behold, here is water, what does hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they both went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. So then, let's uh, start off with uh, just a little, a little basic point about, about Philip. But he's told in verse 26 to go down into the desert, and it's emphasised to go into the desert. This is at, uh, in, certainly in the heat of the day, when presumably people weren't, weren't really travelling, but he's told to go into the desert, into the middle of nowhere and it says that he arose and, and went and uh, you, you could argue that this is a little uh, cameo of how we should obey the, the commission to, uh, to preach the gospel even when it's humanly unlikely and in fact reading through the New Testament there's so many uh, examples of where people are converted where that was sort of unexpected for the preacher like throw your net on the other side they were convinced there'd be no response But Philip was willing to go. That's the point. In verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and join yourself to this chariot. And Philip ran, ran to him. So he's told to do something and he responds enthusiastically. And it seems to me that that is the whole nature of the call of the gospel, that we are to believe that people are potentially Interested, and if we play our part in responding to these sort of nudges from God then we will, it seems to me, without question um, find response so Philip finds him reading Isaiah 53 and he, he listens to him doing this and he says in the AV, understandest thou what thou readest now this is a, a play on, on words there ginoskeis <laughs> ha do you understand what you're understanding? Do you really understand experientially what you are understanding by reading? That's the, uh, the wordplay. And so the idea is that we can read but not read. We can understand but not understand. And this is, I, I think, the whole uh, difficulty with Bible reading, that we read the words. We, on one level, understand, but the question is, do you understand what you understand? Do you really understand? That, that's the, uh, the wordplay here. And this is why we do need to pray before we read the scriptures. Because we're familiar, many of us, with, with the text. And yet the idea is that beneath that assumed understanding, there is the real understanding. This is why you can read the same passage year after year, and then suddenly you perceive what this is demanding of you, and you make a concrete change in your life. And this is what we have to ask ourselves, when was the last time, and I really read the Bible, and then got up and did something concrete about it. Now, the Greek seems to imply, when he says in 31, how can I, except someone should guide me, that the Greek really does imply, of course I can't. I cannot understand unless somebody guides me. And this is, it seems, the case. It's all very well to talk about sola scriptura, to talk about the Bible is all sufficient. Uh, But this incident seems to indicate that somebody can read and read, but unless there is somebody to explain it, to put the gospel sort of into an embodied form, to make that word become flesh, they will not really understand what they're understanding. They will not really read what they're reading. Now, of course, this has been abused by the Catholics and by the Orthodox uh, churches, uh, I mean by that uh, Russian Orthodoxy and and the like. This has been abused to mean that you can't ever really understand the the Bible unless the Church explains it to you. Now, that is an abuse of, of this. But on the other hand... The idea that if you're marooned on a desert island, you could read the Bible and uh, get the whole message for yourself, that, that is uh, also uh, questionable. I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but my observation is that it very rarely happens. I met in the uh, late 80s and early 90s in this part of the world here in the, in the former Soviet Union many people who had had a Bible Um, and had tried to read it, but obviously weren't allowed to go to church and all that, Uh, and they had just not been able to understand it until they met us, and all we did was to to join the dots in in these people's minds, and then they they saw the picture and got baptised. Now, as I say, it, it is possible, I can't say it's impossible, that somebody could just sit down and read a Bible and figure it all out I think in my own case I wouldn't. If I had opened the Bible at Genesis, I might have gone to Leviticus, but I would have just closed the book and said, look here, I, I, I can't do this, I can't figure this. Or I've met people who did actually soldier through and read every word of the Bible but in, in searching for its meaning, but every one of those people then said to me, uh, that the ones that I met, uh, in some way, in some form, thank you that you sort of explained it, that you put it all together. So, I come to the conclusion that God chooses and prefers to work through the mechanism of the body of Christ. To explain Christ to people, people must meet people. And this is the great limitation of preaching through internet sites, through books such as Bible Basics or or whatever. It's all very well, it goes so far, but until there is that human contact it's quite unlikely, I think, that somebody would just pick up the ideas and run with them and and get it and understand what they understand. To uh, get back there to verse 31. So then, God has set up his whole means of saving people through the church, through believers. And so therefore he has, as uh, Paul says, entrusted us with the gospel. We have been given the gospel, and we may think, oh you know, I have no talent, so who am I? You know, what is my role?" We have all been given far more than we might imagine, and it is for us, therefore, to share that with other people. Now, we may think that, "Yeah, nobody, no one's interested," but just think a little bit about this Ethiopian guy. He's extremely wealthy. He's right up in the uh, leadership of, uh, of his country, he's got great authority under uh, Candace. You, you could read that, that he was like second in command, he was over all her treasure, he was a key person, and he'd come to Jerusalem to worship. It could be argued that he um, was a, a descendant, a spiritual descendant of uh, the, the Queen of Sheba, who would have been from that uh, part of the world. And so he had accepted the Judaism, and he was fairly serious, he'd come to Jerusalem for the worship, and now he's going home. And you might think, well, you know, that's that's all very good, but um, why would somebody like that, who's educated enough to read for himself, can read out loud, um, which was only a minority of the population could have done that, and who had all this wealth, uh, who was he? to be interested in the gospel and yet what particularly attracted him was when he reads about a man who was, verse 32 led as a sheep to the slaughter who was dumb before his shearers like a lamb who couldn't open his mouth who had been humiliated who had no justice his justice or judgment had been taken away who had no one to declare his generation, that is, he had no children, at his funeral nobody would stand up and declare his uh, genealogy, and whose life was taken from the earth. There's this man with all this wealth and power, and yet he's a eunuch, and so he doesn't have any, any children. <coughs> and he had been, in that sense, humiliated amongst men. And he's particularly attracted to this idea of a dying man who has had justice taken away who has no children, nobody to declare his generation who is in a sense dumb like a lamb and who is simply led to the slaughter I wondered if this man was in fact terminally ill either that or he perceived his mortality he realized that his life also was going to be taken away from the earth he felt that uh, the process of being a eunuch had left him humiliated. He felt that it was somehow unjust. There was a lack of justice. You know, why should he be made a eunuch? Just because he was going to be second in command to, uh, to a woman, to a queen. Therefore, he had to be made a eunuch. He had no children, which in their culture was uh, just unbearable to live with. And he saw something in this person he was reading about that was him. So, there you are, somebody with all the wealth and all the power in the world, in a sense. And there the guy is feeling very sorry for himself and thinking about this person he's encountered in reading the Bible and he sees an identity between himself and this person. Now, how do you know how many apparently disinterested people behind the veil of their wealth, of their expensive cars and beautiful homes and power and and success in this life. How do you know that those people are not actually quietly desperate? It seems to me that there is a huge level of quiet desperation in our societies. And what there was in this man was a huge hole that only Jesus could fill his own suffering, his own experience of life, and his own feelings that had arisen in him as presumably an older man coming to the end of his life, um, searching for meaning, he, that, that, that hole, that gap, those huge gaps that were in his life, were the very shape of Jesus. And so it is with a lot of people. They may not be interested, at least initially, in coming to meeting uh, or signing up for you know whatever we, we might our preaching might ask them to sign up for but there is a hole I would say actually in every heart that is the perfect shape for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and so this is really why when the story ends with his baptism that that makes perfect sense because he had read about this person and he says who is he talking about, himself or somebody else? And then Philip tells him about Jesus and he takes the initiative and says, 36, here's water, what hinders me to be baptised. He wanted to identify with the Lord Jesus because he had obviously gone on to, to understand how this Jesus who had had all these problems, humiliation, justice taken away, etc., that he had then been resurrected and that he would have spiritual children, one of whom of course was the Ethiopian eunuch and that this life was not all for this this man as he says of whom the prophet speaks and so this is really the case for all of us that those gaps that there are in your life that sense of longing, that sense that there is something not enough, I wish bitterly that life had been another way, that I had this, that I had that, that all those feelings and all that sadness which there is in so many lives that is the perfect shape for Jesus to fit, and so the act of identity that he wanted to to commit of, of being baptized into Jesus this absolutely fits us as well in different ways. It may not be that you struggle with humiliation or not having children or injustice but whatever the issues are in your life he, Jesus, went through those things and is your exact representative and there is this sense of identity, therefore, between us and Jesus. So what does it mean to feel one with Jesus, to be one with him as he was with the Father? Well. These are fine words and fine ideas, but what it boils down to in practice is that all those areas in your life where you feel this pain, this frustration, this lack of whatever, He there can fill them, particularly He there on the cross, because all these uh, descriptions here in verse 31 and 32, this is all taken out of uh, uh, the uh, description of of the crucifixion. And so then, when he says in 34, who's he speaking about himself, or about someone else? I don't know what Philip said, but I, I wonder if basically the answer to that was, well, in a sense both, that it was about Isaiah, but that Old Testament individual had this connection with Jesus, because he went through the same things. He was the suffering servant. And the suffering servant prophecies, and this is uh, one of them, um, apply not only to Jesus, they apply to Israel in the sense of all God's people. Now, let's just notice verse 33. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. Now there's a slight change from certainly the Hebrew text of Isaiah 53. He was definitely quoting from the, uh, the Septuagint. And yet, yeah, it's also very much to be connected with, um, <clears throat> with Philippians chapter 2, that talks about the humiliation of Jesus on the cross. But there, Paul says that he humbled himself. And here, the statement is that he was humbled. Now, humility is vital. It really is. That we are to humble ourselves, but as soon as you start to do that, God will humble you. Now, if we cry out within ourselves about injustice, and one way or another a lot of people suffer with this, this is really a form of God's humbling of you. In fact, you and me, we must be humbled so that we can be exalted in due time. This is a great theme all the way through, uh, particularly the the New Testament. Jesus repeatedly taught at least four separate occasions he who exalts himself will be abased but he who humbles or abases himself will be exalted and he of course was the the parade example really of that and so then that's why Jesus will be the greatest in the kingdom because he humbled himself the most now this man, this uh, eunuch (coughs) seems to me is set up in a sense to be every man, to be each of us. Why I say that is because if you look over at Romans 10 verse 14 it seems that Paul speaks there to the Romans in language that's really got to be connected with this this whole incident. Romans 10 verse 14 Uh, Well 13 Whoever, Jew or Gentile, shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how should they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how should they hear without a preacher? And how should they preach except they be sent? Now this is exactly, you know, Philip being sent to the Ethiopian eunuch. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. He ran on foot to the, uh, to the chariot. And so each of us in, in that sense... Um, have had the gospel explained to us and we cannot hear, he says here, without a preacher. Which connects, I, I think, with what the, the man says, that how can I understand unless you explain to me? I can't. It's not possible. So then we're each really in that position. If you ask yourself why you are where you are now, baptised into Christ, uh, etc., waiting for the Lord's return and hope of the kingdom, it's not just because you read the Bible. There, was, there were other factors. There were other people in your life. could have been family. could have been uh, meetings with people. It could have been other people's initiative in sharing the gospel with you that resulted in you now knowing him. So it's all by grace. Otherwise when you think about it it, if it was only by our sort of unaided Bible reading we would have, as Paul puts it, wed off to glory. But God has structured it in a beautiful way so that it's it's not like that really. Um, That his mechanism is through others and that's of course why our conversion to Christ results in Uh, unity and and a sense of community between us and those who who preach to us. And that's why that should never ever be be broken by church politics or or whatever it might be. Also notice that just uh, in passing really in 35, Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. He began at the scripture and preached Jesus. Very similar to Jesus himself, Luke 24, 27, he began in the prophets and expounded in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You may like to scribble that in your margin, if it's not already, by verse 35 of Acts 8, he began at the same scripture, in Isaiah, uh, and preached. Luke 24, 27, Jesus began in the prophets and expounded in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What we learn from that is that the witness of the early believers here in Acts was a continuation of the, the actual personal witness of Jesus as he walked around Galilee for three and a half years uh, teaching and preaching the gospel. So then, that's why uh, in, in Acts 1, uh, verse, verse 1, it, it begins by saying, uh, the former treatise of I made, concerning all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Luke, the Gospel of Luke, was the record of what Jesus began to do, and Acts is the record of what he continued to do. And he is continuing to do that today, so that in all our witness to others, we are a reflection, a, a manifestation, if you like, of of the Lord Jesus. We are connected with Him. And that's why particularly whenever you try to witness the Gospel, you will feel Jesus with you. That you are in His presence and you are His face to this world. Because it's been so truly said that if we are the body of Christ how can anyone meet Jesus today? They can only see anything of Him through you and me. That is how people meet Jesus. You see the the whole Christ-centered focus of of their uh, preaching in verse 35. He preached unto him Jesus. He preached a man, a person. Not a set of theory, but he preached a person. And that, of course, is what is so attractive to people, as it was to this man, this eunuch. That it's not a set of theory. It is about a person that he could connect with. And of course our understanding that the Lord Jesus was our representative and not in that sense a substitute enables this kind of thing to happen. You may think that's an academic point. Many years ago I used to think that was just academic that Jesus was a representative and not a substitute. But you start to see the the huge practical uh, meaning and attraction of that when you see a guy like this eunuch who couldn't have children who was now getting older I was thinking that, well, there's going to be nobody to declare my generation. I have been humbled. Uh, he was maybe bitter about the whole thing. Why was I made a unit? Just because I was the right-hand guy uh, to a woman. So, well, they, they made me a unit just because of that. Um, I can't say what I really want to say. I'm like a lamb that's dumb. I've just got to be a yes-man. I've just got to be the big accountant, look after all the treasure, etc., and he connected with Jesus because he saw in the Lord Jesus a representative of himself. And let's keep on reminding ourselves that these passages that we this passage here in Isaiah 53 that's being quoted, this is all about the crucifixion. He saw particularly in the cross of Christ somebody who was his representative. And so it is really wonderful and amazing really how one man there, suffering as he did was somehow the epitome of every man, that he was absolutely every person's representative and that is one reason why he suffered so much, not just physically but mentally, so that nobody could say he's not my representative. I've met radical feminists who say, I couldn't accept Jesus I need a female Jesus, I need a woman, I don't don't need a a man, you know, what would this Jesus know about postnatal depression? What would he know about female issues? And as you probably probably, uh, aware, there there has been a, a fairly significant movement amongst some black Americans yeah, not just black Americans, but um, amongst uh, black Africans arguing that we don't need a white man to be our saviour. If Jesus really is to be our saviour, he's got to be a black guy. Because how can he relate to me? And those arguments are, in one sense, true and understandable. If Jesus was just an ordinary person like you or me, I mean, in one sense he was, but um, where those arguments go wrong is that they fail to appreciate the degree to which the Lord Jesus was the representative of each of us. And that his unique life and the unique range of sufferings that he had were arranged by God so that he can connect with everybody. So yes, he can say, yep, yeah, postnatal depression, I as a male can connect with that, no problem. And incidentally, whilst I'm on that 32, um, it's quoting from the Septuagint here, uh, as a lamb before his shearer is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. Actually, in the Hebrew text, it's a bit different. As a lamb before her shearers is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. And that subtle uh, difference, I think, is significant because what Isaiah 53 will be saying then, is that Jesus felt like a female sheep. A female. Even though he, you know, he was male, he didn't open his mouth. So, he suffered so much, as I say, both mentally and physically, that he can truly enter into the feelings of absolutely every one of us, be it male or female. Of course, the argument that, well, he's got to be female for me, or he's got to be black for me because I'm black, he's got to be Chinese for me because I'm Chinese or whatever, I mean that all falls down a bit because you, you need to have a whole load of Jesuses then uh, to, to save everybody. But the fact is that uniquely in him, for those who believe in him, who believe truly that he was and is representative of each of us he therefore truly can connect with each of us and we therefore can connect with him now when you look at art, uh, depictions of Jesus in art, you sort of see the same thing, that the Spanish masters uh, painted Jesus as a, a Spaniard in say on, on a typical Spanish rooftop. The Italian masters painted him with Italian features uh, and black artists have painted him with, with black features and that's quite understandable because the artist connects from himself or herself with Jesus and they see him as as them in a sense and that's quite uh, understandable the fact is the Lord Jesus in this mystery I suppose it is because it's very hard to really uh, define it and they put it in, in words but he had this unique uh, situation in life that was structured by God and in a, this unique way And he responded to all the the nudges and the prods and the directions that God gave him to this end, so that he really is the representative of each of us. And so, even though it may be true, when we feel in low moments, nobody knows how I feel, that may be true on this earth. But it's not ultimately true on a sort of cosmic level, because there in heaven is someone who does know. And for all time now, the, the argument that I am existentially, ultimately, alone is now no longer true. Because each of us, even a wealthy, elderly, rather disillusioned, jaded old guy uh, with all the power and the pomp and the, the pride of this life uh, going through the desert, going down, uh, driving down the highway, as, uh, as we would put it, uh, driving home down the highway, Uh, in his uh, Mercedes, as it would have uh, directly, uh, sort of uh, dynamically translated into in our terms uh, even for him Jesus was for him because the hole in his heart and believe me, every single person has got a hole in their heart that hole in his heart was uh, perfectly the, the shape of the human representative Son of God, Jesus And I think when he's asked to make make a confession of faith that he chooses to, he says, I believe that uh, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, verse 37, I think that that's significant because he started off his interest in Jesus by seeing how this Jesus is similar to me. He's my representative. He was humbled, he also didn't have children, he also didn't get justice, etc. And yet he goes on to say, yes, but he's also Son of God in a way that I am not. So this one, this man, this being in heaven, who can connect directly with me, is also Son of God. And therefore, if I'm connected with him, his life, his resurrection, becomes mine. And so, as I say, this is why he suffered so much is why he had to suffer uh, so much and not just uh, just physically as I say but mentally so that nobody could say that I am alone so there's no one who can say that I am outside the scope of what he can do for me so often people say this in their cynicism what can he or what can Christianity do for me well by connecting with him we have the ultimate unity because everybody has this desire to connect ultimately. They are not conscious of that desire but they do. And We live in a society where people are locked up really inside their own little apartments inside their own little lives. Um, uh, The internet has uh, really made it like this big time even more so and people are poor at relationships and yet there is this desire to connect with someone who will not let you down. And this is where really all the basic doctrines that we, we teach and preach, that the Lord Jesus was not God himself, he was of our nature, he was a man of our nature, yet also Son of God, had all our temptations, was our representative to the end, particularly in his death on the cross, and that we can identify with him by baptism. You know, all this has so much cash value, this has so much meaning in practice. So don't think that nobody's interested. People are. Even that rich businessman uh, jaded with life driving home down the highway in his Mercedes. There is that Christ-shaped hole in that man's or that woman's life. There, There really is. But representation runs two ways. It's not only that he is our representative and we're attracted to that. By connection with him in baptism we also become his representatives on this earth because we become part of the body of Christ and we become him. And so as we focus now upon him there on the cross, which is how this man started by reading a prophecy of the crucifixion, in a sense as Paul says to the Galatians, we died there in his death, in his sufferings, in his life we see something of our own. And so that's why the breaking of bread is really a very personal time of self-examination as well as, of course, examination of, of him there. The two things run together. Examining him there means inevitably seeing yourself, in a strange sense, reflected back to yourself. And yet the great comfort is that he didn't stay on the cross. He died and resurrected, and his life, the life that he lives, as Paul says in Romans 6 again, talking about identification with him in baptism, the life that he lives now is the life that we live and shall eternally live.